I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today's podcast is a special program, Understanding Wavefront. We'll get to it in a minute. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Mark Odrich, as Medical Director of Visex AMO, declares royalty, intellectual property rights, consulting, and equity ownership. Dan Krill declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. This is Montauk, the easternmost tip of Long Island in New York State. East of me is 3,000 miles of Atlantic Ocean, ending on the shores of Portugal. I'm here to explain Wavefront, but I'm not at a seashore for the reason you might expect. We're not looking at the waves, not at least yet. We're going to look at the ocean. The ocean is like a great lens covering most of the surface of the Earth. And like the Earth, it is spherical. Well, that's not quite true. You see, the Earth isn't quite spherical. It bulges a little bit along the equator. The diameter of the Earth along its axis of rotation, that's to say from North Pole to South Pole, is about 12,714 kilometers. But perpendicular to this axis, from equator to opposite equator, the diameter is a little larger, 12,756 kilometers, or about 40 kilometers more than the diameters through the poles. Or, put in the language of an astronaut ophthalmologist, viewing the Earth as a globe from space, the curvature of the ocean is steeper vertically than it is horizontally. The Earth's oceans demonstrate with the rule astigmatism. The deviation from sphericity doesn't end here. The sun and the moon tug on the oceans, creating tremendous outpouchings. We experience these as the tides. But as ophthalmologists, we don't have the language to describe an eccentric elevation precisely. Nor can we describe the waves upon the ocean. These are all for us a regular astigmatism. In his novel, Watership Down, Richard Adams writes, Rabbits can count up to four. Any number above four is rare, a lot, or a thousand. We, as ophthalmologists, aren't even as sophisticated as that. We can only count to two. Spherical error, one. Astigmatism, two. Then anything beyond two is a regular astigmatism. We might as well call it rare. There is a language to describe optical aberrations beyond our basic two of sphere and astigmatism, but it requires a leap we aren't often asked to make. I teach clinical optics. The subjects we cover, vergence, cross diagrams, Prentice rule, all have one thing in common. 
they all treat light as a ray. Let's take a simple object lens image problem. A candle is one half meter from a plus three diopter lens. Where is the image formed? Well, at the flame itself, rays of light diverge with infinite verges. Some of these rays, the minority to be sure, are on course to collide with the lens. At a tenth meter from the flame, the vergence is minus 10 diopters. At a quarter meter, minus four diopters. At the surface of the lens, one half meter from the flame, the rays of light have a vergence of minus two diopters. The rays pass through a plus three diopter lens and emerge with a vergence of plus one diopter. Doing so, and without the interruption of any other optical element, they converge to form an image one meter from the lens. Now, I've drawn here, as I do for my residents, a single ray of light on its path from flame to lens to image. But of course, this ray is only representative of millions, or more probably about 10 to the 20th photons per second, which will follow similar courses. We picture these as bundles of rays propagating from flame to image. But just as light itself has a dual nature as particle and as wave, so does our optical expression of this photon particle object lens image optical problem have a wave doppelganger. Let's re-examine the problem. This time, instead of taking the perspective of a single ray, let's examine all the rays. Let's follow a cohort of photons emitted from the candle's flame at a single instant. At the moment of emission, the photons occupy a single point. Immediately, they expand to form a sphere, a bubble of light, inflating at 300 million meters per second. As the bubble expands to a distance one-tenth meter from the candle, it describes a sphere with a radius of one-tenth meter. At one-fifth meter from the candle, the radius is twice as large, and the curvature of the sphere is much flatter. We can describe this light bubble as a wave front and describe its curvature mathematically. In fact, we already do this in clinical optics. The shape of a wave front at one meter from the candle is one diopter. When the wave front was only one-tenth meter from the flame, the curvature was 10 diopters. And since this wave front is convex and therefore expanding, or in the parlance of geometrical optics, diverging, its shape is minus 10 diopters. At one-half meter, when the wave front of this expanding bubble of light is minus two diopters, it encounters the lens. Because of its shape, and because it is composed of a material which impedes the progress of the expanding sphere of light, the lens changes the shape of that portion of the wavefront that passes through it. Our plus three diopter lens has more than enough power to change the shape of the wavefront from a convex expanding boundary to a concave imploding one. Over the span of a meter, this concave front collapses to a point. In the language of wavefront, we refer to aberrations. These are deviations from a reference wavefront. If the measured wavefront is tilted with respect to the reference, we call this a first-order aberration. First-order aberrations do not play a significant role in clinical optics. Second-order aberrations include spherical deviations, 
such as we have just described. Second-order aberrations also include astigmatic errors. In this case, the wavefront is ellipsoid, a minus cylinder with its axis vertically held in front of the flame, produces a wavefront with sides that lag behind the top and bottom. But unlike the rabbits in Richard Adams' novel, we can keep counting. Third-order aberrations include coma and triform astigmatism. Fourth-order and higher aberrations have known nomenclature in clinical optics. We can, however, describe the shape of the wavefronts mathematically. We can produce polynomial equations which approximate the shape of the wavefront, First-order aberrations, tilt, can be described with two terms, one for the x-axis and one for the y. Second-order aberrations are described using three terms, and third-order aberrations, four terms. These curve-matching equations are called Zernike polynomials. Back in Montauk, we could have used Zernike polynomials to describe the curvature of the ocean and the swell of the tide, if not the ripples on the surface. But what of those ripples? they distort the wavefront as well. Of course, it is all well and good to talk about wavefront, but the wavefront idea is of no clinical utility if it cannot be measured. In the history of, of optics, we've long recognized that there are things that can cause blurring of vision. Mark Odrich is Assistant Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology at the Columbia University School of Medicine and Medical Director of Visix AMO. We've really only recognized the lower orders for the past several hundred years, which involve typically just the sphere, the cylinder, and the axis. However, with the onset of high-power, high-definition telescopes in the 60s and through the 80s, we became aware that when you start to look at point-to-point -point discrimination and optics and the ability to discern, particularly in telescopes where it originated, the ability to discern specific stars that it really was not adequate to solely think of the things that would blur vision in optical pathways, be they telescopes or the human eye, as just sphere, cylinder, and axis. And so there were discovered or described, finally, a list of things called higher-order aberrations, which are really disturbances in the optical pathway that are not adequately described by the lower orders. So it's a definition, in a sense, of exclusion, but recognizing that our prescription of glass spectacles has, in, in fact, for the past centuries, accounted for these higher orders by averaging them into our spectacle lenses. When you think about higher order aberrations, it is a piece of something of our prescription for glasses that really has been averaged into, into our spherocylindrical lenses. And now we have the ability to describe them mathematically and take these higher orders out and assess them somewhat individually, such as coma, spherical aberration, trefoil, tetrafoil. These are things that contribute to the overall amotropia of an uh, optical system, including our eyes. And we now can characterize them and hopefully start to appreciate the symptoms they're responsible for and then eventually correct them. Imagine an emotropic observer looking at a star at night. That star is effectively at an infinite distance from the observer, and it is infinitely small, that is to say, a point. Light from the star approaches the observer's eye with a vergence of zero. 
the observer's anterior segment causes these rays to converge to a point on the fovea. Now, let's take the case of the myopic observer. Zero vergence rays of light strike his eyes well. They too are resolved to a point, but anterior to the fovea. By the time the rays encounter the fovea, they have again diverged and describe a blur circle. Next, let's put a pinhole in front of the myope's eye. We know that by excluding all but the central rays, an image of the star, albeit a much dimmer one, will be projected on the fovea. The pinhole would produce a similar image on the emetrope's fovea as well. Nothing interesting here. But things become very interesting if we begin to move the pinhole. Let's move the pinhole one millimeter superior to the myope's pupil center. This pinhole excludes all rays of light except those passing through a small superior portion of the optics of the anterior segment. Like all rays of light propagating from the star to the myope's retina, they converge to a point somewhere in the observer's vitreous directly anterior to the fovea. These rays continue through this point and strike the retina inferior to the fovea. The net result is this. A clear image of the star is still resolved on the myopes retina, but it is not resolved on the fovea. Since zero vergence rays of light passing coaxially through the superior cornea are on course for the inferior retina, that is where the pinhole image is formed. Let's contrast this case with that of the amitrope. Displacing the pinhole here does nothing. Since all of the photons coming from the star and entering the emetrope's eye are bound for the fovea, moving the pinhole one millimeter superiorly will not displace the image from the fovea. We can use this system to map the optics of the entire anterior segment by moving the pinhole to multiple locations and observing, perhaps through the use of a fundus camera, where on the retina the image is formed. Or, rather than moving the pinhole, we can place a grid of many pinholes in front of the observer's eye and view their displacements all at once. But we can make things even more convenient by recognizing that optics is, in a sense, commutative. Any ray of light passing from left to right through an optical system will retrace the same path if moving from right to left. So, this time, Rather than following light moving from outside of the eye to the retina, we will follow light moving from the retina to the outside of the eye. If we illuminate the fovea of an emetropic eye, the rays of light will emerge from this point on the retina with a minus virgins. However, after passing through the anterior segment, these same rays will exit the eye with zero virgins. Remember, zero virgins light entering the eye of an emetropic observer will converge to a point on the retina. Therefore, rays of light propagating from a point on the retina will emerge from the eye with a zero virgins, the commutative power of optics. Let's express the same situation in the language of wavefront. The expanding bubble of light emanating from the fovea is convex and therefore has a minus virgins. After passing through the anterior segment, the wavefront is flat, planar, having no curve. Now we add the grid of pinholes in front of the emetrope's eye. The flat wavefront, or parallel rays of light, two ways of saying the same thing, encounter the grid. 
those rays passing through the pinholes emerge as parallel pencils of light. If we place a screen in back of the grid, these pencils will produce a pattern on the screen identical to the pattern of pinholes on the grid. What of the myope? If we illuminate his fovea, rays of light will emerge from the eye with a positive virgence. Remember, the myope is, by nature, overplussed. That's why we prescribe minus lenses. These rays exit the eye in a converging path or with a concave wavefront. They encounter the grid and produce a pattern on the screen more closely spaced than the pinholes on the grid. We have now created a device to measure optical aberration, an aberometer, specifically a Hartmann aberometer. We can improve the efficiency of this device by placing tiny lenses within the holes of the grid so that each aperture focuses light on the screen. This improved device is called a Schack-Hartmann aberometer. The Schack-Hartmann aberometer can do several important things for us. It can give us a map of the optics of the eye. Now we can talk about optical aberrations in a quantitative way without resorting to the hair of irregular astigmatism. Keep in mind, this is quite different from corneal topographic maps. Corneal topography describes the local curvature of the anterior corneal surface and, depending upon the device, sometimes the posterior corneal surface as well. But the surface of the cornea is only one optical element of the eye. The Schack-Hartmann aberometer gives us information about the optics of the entire eye. It cannot tell us what the individual optical contributions are of any one part of the eye. We're almost there. As useful as the Schack-Hartmann aberometer is, we don't quite get the sense of the shape of the wavefront looking at the map of refractive data. Since the spacing of the pencils of light on the screen is a function of local refractive error, these raw data produce a sort of refractive map. We're still working in rays of light and diopters, but we're getting close. Now, imagine we had a picture of a wavefront. How would we describe it? Well, one thing we could do is to compare the shape of the wavefront to a reference plane. We could talk about how many microns the wavefront deviates from the reference. This is the same way in which we describe a landscape. We create a reference plane we call sea level and then describe the contour of the landscape as elevations above or below sea level. Once we have this elevation data, we can talk about things like how steep the face of a mountain is. The steepness, or slope, of the wavefront is the first derivative of elevation. So, if the units of elevation are microns, the units of slope are microns per millimeter. Just as we might describe the grade of a hill by saying that it inclines by 10 meters every kilometer, we can say that the slope of a portion of the wavefront inclines by 10 microns every millimeter. The first derivative of slope is curvature. This doesn't really have an analog in geophysical maps. I guess one could talk about how pointy a mountain is or how gently rolling a hill is, and this would be an expression of curvature. Let's examine what happens to the units when we take the first derivative of slope. The units of slope are, again, microns per millimeter. Therefore, the units of curvature must be microns per millimeter squared. In scientific notation, 
microns per millimeter squared is equivalent to 10 to the minus 6 meters over the product of 10 to the minus 3 meters times 10 to the minus 3 meters, or 10 to the minus 6 meters squared. Canceling out the 10 to the minus 6 and the meter in both the numerator and the denominator, we are left with 1 over meters. Recognize that unit? 1 over meters is diopters. So the unit of the second derivative of the wavefront's micron is diopters. Okay, so maybe we can't take the second integral of the Schack-Hartmann aberrometer's data in our heads, but we can see that it is only one short step to derive the shape of the wavefront from the tiny dots on the aberrometer screen. Right, well, that's enough math for today. Let's lighten things up a bit. Let's see, who can we call about wavefront? Kodak, they, they know a lot about optics. Let's see, engineering, metrology, metrology. Google Metrology, the scientific study of measurement. Okay, so optical metrology. Here we go. Senior metrology engineer, Dan Krill. Let's dial this phone and... Hello. Dan Krill? Yeah. Dan, I'm creating a space-based laser with which I intend to vanquish my foes. I've purchased the best aspheric lenses and mirrors. In order to assure instant lethality, I need to focus the laser beam to a spot no more than one centimeter across my enemy's heads. Can I do it? Not without adaptive optics, you can't. Adaptive optics? I've already got the best lenses. Why do I need anything else? Due to Gaussian optics, the beam is going to start diverging anyways. If we were to shoot a beam from the Earth up to the moon, it would actually probably be a couple meters wide by the time it gets up to the moon because it just naturally diverges. Actually, as you shoot it through the atmosphere of the Earth, it acts like a lens, and it's going to distort the laser beam. And it will cause variations in the wavefront of the laser beam so that you won't get a clean beam anymore. So I need to know the wavefront describing the optical aberrations of the atmosphere? Uh, yes, plus it's also turbulent. So as you go higher, the air atmosphere gets thinner and thinner, so the index of refraction changes. And because it's turbulent, the index of refraction changes over time as well. So it's spatially and temporally incoherent. So now that I know the wavefront, what do I do about it? Well, first you need to focus the beam right on his forehead. Second, you just have to use adaptive optics to compensate for any variations in the atmosphere. So that as it goes through the atmosphere, uh, the beam will actively be changed to compensate for any inhomogeneities in the atmosphere. Okay, so I need adaptive optics. What's that? Adaptive optics are multiple element mirrors where you can actively change the wavefront coming off the mirror by minutely changing the figure of each of the small parts of that mirror. Uh, just like with a really, really large mirror that you see maybe in Hawaii or in Arizona, the, like Keck or Hobby Eberly telescopes, they're multiple segment telescopes. And you can put stresses on the back of each of the segments and change the beam out at infinity um, based on what you do to that segment. So if you can coordinate all the uh, changes to the, each of the segments, you can compensate for any irregularities in the medium that the laser beam is traveling through. Mark Odrich, I've just spoken with Dan Krill and know how to build my death ray. Apparently, the key is adaptive optics. Can I use adaptive optics clinically? You know, there are no adaptive optics systems that I am aware of yet in ocular uh, wavefront devices. What can I do? 
currently the way this is being done is that the light is, is uh, placed into an eye and then there are cameras, little, little lenslets in, in, in the camera that basically collect the light information that exits from the eye and then is placed really into a position sensor and we know where the light should be and we know where the light is. And that difference creates the specific signature, if you will, of disturbances within that optical pathway that would allow us to then create a solution for that, a mathematical solution for those disturbances. The, the art in all of this, if you will, is the transfer of this to the biologic substrate, which is to recognize that this, this light is deviated this much, and then to calculate the lens tissue that has to be removed to compensate for that. And you can just think to yourself of, of all the different little pieces that have to occur. First of all, you have to have a laser. Let's start off before the laser. You have to have the correct mathematical ability to identify those uh, deviations. You then have to have a laser, once you get the instruction set, that is capable of making those corrections on the cornea, and then you have to have the appropriate biologic substrate, meaning the corneal tissue itself, and you have to have characterized that correctly in your model so that you can say that each time you put one pulse of light on the eye, a known quantity of tissue is removed because that's the, what the entire model is predicated on. So it's an extraordinarily complicated ballet, if you will, of different little parts that have to be put together. And each time, you know, as having worked with laser manufacturers, I can tell you that each time you think about this, you really have to correctly identify and place all of these little light pulses, and they have to be exquisitely placed to correct these patterns. And so, you know, I, I think in the future you're going to see what I call tightening down the tolerances, making sure that you are increasingly positive that that photon that was interacting with the corneal stroma is positioned in the correct place. So there you have it. Expanding bubbles of light, telescopes with deformable mirrors, death rays, and a vocabulary that makes us seem smarter than rabbits. Wavefront gives us a new way to think about the optics of the eye and a new therapeutic target. For listeners interested in learning more about Wavefront, I'd like to recommend two excellent papers I found valuable in the preparation of this program. Wavefront Technology in Ophthalmology by Nayuki Maeda in Current Opinion in Ophthalmology, 2001, Volume 12, pages 294 to 299, and The Optics of Wavefront Sensing by Larry Thebos in Ophthalmology Clinics of North America, 2004, Volume 17, pages 111 to 117. Comments? Questions? Call our listener response lines in the United States dial, area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial, 020-7558-8275 or Skype, JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website at seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.